Well, thanks so much for being with me today, Katie. I really love the collection, and I wonder uh, if we could start by talking about the epigraph that you've chosen to lead the reader into your collection with. And it's your own translation of a line from Augustine's Confessions, and it reads, Whither can the heart go from the heart? Why begin with Augustine, and why begin with this particular bit from the Confessions? What do you find interesting or, or challenging or resonant about it? I had been listening, actually listening and not reading Augustine at the time I was listening to mm. recordings of other people reading him on um, LibriVox. And I had read Augustine a long time ago, but this portion to me, you know, he's in, he has a kind of deep conflict at the moment of this utterance. And he's just, he's articulating, I think, the human inability to leave parts of oneself that, mm. or, or to deny kind of the honesty of the heart that you can't actually flee from yourself or what is going on internally. So, you know, the kind of answer to the question that Augustine is pos posing here is, well, nowhere, you know, the heart mm. can't leave the heart. And I did, you know, I did several translations to see kind of where I wanted to land. And I liked kind of the archaic sound of, of wither. Yeah. Um, but I also liked the plain spokenness of every other word and the one syllable monosyllabic rendering of the rest. So, you know, Augustine also is really one of the best um, memoirs <laughs> that we have. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. So I think I'm not at all going to him as a sense of a patriarchal authority. I'm going to Augustine in the places where he is trying very hard to feel differently than he does feel. There's a passage near it where he, he says, um, I thought if only I would take a hot bath, I would feel better. Uh -huh. And then he, then he takes a hot bath and he says, but I didn't. I didn't feel better. So there's, it's just a very human portion of Augustine where he's not talking about belief right there. He's, he's talking about not being able to flee oneself. And so you have to instead investigate and listen kind of to the in, internal ongoings um, of the heart. Yeah. And, and a lot of the, the issues that you've touched on there and that Augustine touches on, of aloneness, interior experience, the desire, but also the impossibility of escaping from the self are also expressed in the book's first poems, In the Hearth. So I wondered if you wouldn't mind uh, giving the listeners a, a feel for, for the book by reading that first poem in the collection, In the Hearth. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll just say, because listeners might not have the book in front of them, that the poem is spoken from the perspective of iron that is being forged. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll just say that to begin with. In the hearth of life's abundant confusions, this does not partake. My body gripped stiff at length by a smith I cannot see. Alone, not alone, my faceless smith. If I could speak from the forge, I'd want to beg you not to stop, not to feel the guilt of your injurious labor. I know my labor, and whatever shape my body now is bent to, it returns me to that labor. I don't think when I return, I will have a story. 
three things I shall say. I knew I was not entirely alone. When I could speak again, it was from a bath of cool water. But first, I was kept a long time in a flame. And so I was scared to be in my body in the same way one fears a particular house. Perhaps I should move my body, I'd think, but movement is oftentimes prevented, though knowledge of the exact encumbrance is not permitted. Felt, yes, but not defined. Contoured, but not traceably so. Yet my body extends itself outward. It is now the house, the rooftop, the lake and lotus. This is not good news. This is not beauty. I am everywhere, and the fear, when it desires to grow, grows continental, drifting, torn, submerged. And so I ask my body for another house. But the body worsens under the extremity of the request, saddening further, like corners of a fabric sack, burying the very most of the stones. Whatever my body now is bent to, I don't want to have a story. Thank you. That's really lovely. I'm wondering, so many of the figures and ideas from that poem, so the body as a kind of home, the sack weighed down with stones, which reminds me of certain passages where the kingdom comes with stones on its pockets in the addresses section, mm-hmm. uh, the problem, maybe even the kind of impossibility of defining what is felt, all of those ideas recur later in the book. And I'm wondering if you knew from the start that this would be the book's first poem, where it came in the composition of the collection as a whole, or how you decided to use that as the kind of frame leading into, in particular, the long sonnet sequence that, that we'll talk about in just a bit. Mm-hmm. So I first began with the sonnets, writing the sonnets. So the composition began with those. And I started writing them about four years ago in 2014. And sometimes when I felt like a poem just couldn't occur in the sonnet form, but had the same themes or um, because it was being, you know, written in the same time of my life, I would Mm -hmm. take a break from the sonnets and write something different. Some of those poems are in the book. Some just ended up not being cohesive with this book at all. So mm-hmm. I, I think in the hearth, if I remember correctly, like somewhere mid range, like maybe a mm-hmm. year into writing the sonnets, I started writing this poem or maybe a little sooner. And then, and that's how other poems in the, the uh, third and fourth section occurred mm-hmm. as well. So, mm-hmm. and then I didn't know whether I did think about starting the book just with the sonnets. And then I kind of liked this as a, a kind of gateway to the, to the book mm-hmm. and a different type of art- articulation. Yeah. And then I did draw on the stones from this poem in the late parts of the sequence of the sonnets. Yeah. So those, you know, the image of the stones I then uh, used again. So mm-hmm. a lot of those repeating images occur, but I did particularly draw from the hearth here for later in the sonnets. Yeah. And another, another interesting connection I noticed between this poem and the, the sonnet sequence that's really powerfully articulated in, in the hearth is 
this kind of resistance to turning one's suffering or pain into a story. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have the the really uh, striking lines. I don't think when I return, I will have a story. And then later in the poem, whatever my body is now bent to, I don't want to have a story. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then later in the, in the sonnet sequence, you really interestingly seem to almost blur the line between something like plot as story and plot as a place of burial Mm. or death. When you write, um, it feels like a grave in there. Welcome to my plot. Sing without that I can sing. Mm -hmm. And I was just interested for the collection as a whole, or just for you as a, a poet and a thinker, how you think about the relationship between plot in pain or between story and and suffering and why that it seems there is a kind of resistance to turning suffering into story, perhaps because that would make it something other than, than what it is. I'm just interested in how you think about the relationship between those things, plot and pain or story and suffering. Well, I think, you know, my resistance to story is that stories are often very reductive and I don't Mm. mean novels. I don't mean, short stories. I mean, how one talks about experience. And so, Mm -hmm. and how also others talk about your experience. So I think uh, the sense of a story for me would have been a lesser form than a made thing occurring, a piece of art, you know, Mm -hmm. or the making itself being what matters actually. And I think also because this book really came out of a period where my marriage was ending, you know, I had a sense of wanting to resist people's desire or readers desire for a kind of encapsulating sense of what happened, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think poets are very often now asked to have a kind of happening and to have, you know, to satisfy a reader's desire for a kind of minimizing rendering of experience. So, Mm -hmm. um, I didn't want to do that and I still don't want to do that now. And even how I think about my own life. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, but I actually, I hadn't thought of the plot in that poem as really having those dual meanings that you just Mm. pointed out (laughs) the burial plot, but of course that's, yeah, Yeah. that is right there. So yeah. 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 Interesting. One of the reasons that maybe you or or poets or, or creators of, of made things would want to resist that reductive story that you're talking about is because you kind of want to bear witness to and acknowledge the the mystery of your own experience, the fact that it can't be reduced to a neat, tidy story. And that reminds me of a really lovely thing that you said in an interview you did with uh, Nick Rapatrizone at The Millions, where you said that quote, poetry is pressing as far as it can until it hits up against mystery, the unsayable. And that idea of, of mystery and the unsayable is, is certainly important to you as a poet. And I think it's also important to you as someone who has, has studied theology, who went to Harvard Divinity School and whose works continually circle around in all kinds of interesting and problematic ways mystery and the unsayable and and the religious. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could just give us a a kind of sense for your, you know, religious biography um, and how you see that relating to your poetic biography. Again, I I think that, you know, in your works, there's a really interesting way in which we can see your poetry doing similar, but also quite distinct 
kind of investigation from theology trying to say the unsayable without saying it in such a way that it will no longer be the unsayable, if that makes sense. Right. And that's the... (laughs) That's the really circular route, or not route, but it, it's a circle of where you do say something. And then, it, but the sayings, like what we might articulate about the invisible realm, I guess, or God, um, whatever language someone might want to use, or the soul even, we keep trying. And the trying isn't wrongheaded, um, mm-hmm. but our beliefs about those sayings, I think, can be very harmful and wrongheaded. Um when we think actually our sayings have a kind of correctness. So mm-hmm. um, in terms of my own biography, my first book, Deposition, there is a kind of, I wrote that, wrote that in my early 20s. It's kind of a feisty, um, upset reaction in a way to uh, American evangelical Christianity, which I kind of mm-hmm. dipped into almost accidentally, actually, because I was so naive about all the different forms of Christianity and in my early college years. So I went to Harvard then really to study the intellectual reasons for why I felt intuitively like this was a form that had too much to say, you know, that Mm -hmm. said Mm -hmm. too many things in concrete ways and what that does actually to a life, not to all lives. I mean, you have to be careful with, uh, you can't just throw a whole tradition kind of away. There are forms that are very fruitful, and my experience was not that way. So, I, um, so deposition I wrote kind of against it, and mm-hmm. then I've been, in some ways, religious language has always occurred to me authentically and sincerely in mm-hmm. in the poems I wrote in my second and third book, although I might not. I don't think those books really seem like they're spoken by a a poet who has who's Christian, mm-hmm. which is a word also I, I'm kind of neither happy or unhappy to use. But you know, uh-huh. it depends on the audience. Like if yeah, I were to call myself that, I would want to explain it for quite a long time and talk to someone yeah. about it yeah, kind yeah. of deeply. But I still engage those terms because not just to kind of hoist in a kind of power because, but I'm aware I'm doing that as well. You know, you, you import a lot when you use religious language, but, but I think it also indicates a heightened human experience sometimes. And, and in Mm -hmm. the end, I do feel that I believe in something and not nothing, which Mm -hmm. might be as much as I can say theologically, Um, but orientation Mm -hmm. toward that something I think continually needs to be one of um, reverence for not being able to say what it is. Mm -hmm. And it it occurs to me that that kind of thinking works, can work very well for any religious temperament from any tradition. And many traditions have Mm -hmm. that in it. It's just, uh, it's not always Mm -hmm. located, but if that kind of agreement were made, I think we could talk a lot better to others who are, practitioners of other traditions or atheists um, or agnostics. Mm-hmm. So, so I think it's a helpful position, but I also believe it. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I mean, I think yeah, it's pretty I, obvious. No one knows. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. 
in so, some of the some of the strongest moments actually and maybe maybe we can start talking about the sonnet sequence some of the strongest moments in in that long sonnet sequence have to do with express that the sheer fact that we mm-hmm. don't know right you have uh this this lovely bit it's the end of the 31st sonnet in the addresses section where you uh say well, everyone thrashes against a wall in this life. I don't know what I mean, but I mean it. I don't know what to want, but I want it. And when I say God, it's because no one can know it. Not ever, not at all. It's a wall and it drops to the floor as I fall. And Again, I, I think that speaks to that the the experience of of not knowing um, that you are just thinking about, and I think again it's it's a really powerful moment in this series of sonnets that are a really remarkable uh, work that trace the the speaker's experience, the sonnet sequence as a whole, the speaker's experience of emptiness of the void that is left at the end of a relationship, and in all of the the poems individually, in all of the poems taken as a whole, as a sequence, seemed to me to talk about desire, um, about desire for the other, about desire for the uh, past that can't be reclaimed, about, interestingly, desire almost for the end of desire itself. Yeah. And it does all this by thinking and in, in writing apathetically, you mm-hmm. know, like we've been talking about, kind of by unnaming things in order to right. name them. I'm just interested. I mean, first of all, I'm interested why you were drawn to the the crown of sonnets form, right? In which the the kind of last line of a sonnet is picked up and maybe slightly modified, but serves as the first line of the next sonnet. And you write 39 of these interlinked sonnets. So I was just wondering, you talked about how that was the kind of compositional heart of the story. And I'm just wondering, what was it about the sonnet form that, that drew you in for this particular project? Well, I think... The sonnet form in particular, not the crown in specific, but the, the mm-hmm. sonnet is really a little system of logic that's articulated mm. lyrically and musically. So the, you know, every quatrain, cause I'm using the English sonnet, every quatrain has to mm-hmm. kind of be on the move. It can't repeat how it's argued itself. So for instance, you can't use in, three quatrains, the same image of, for instance, like a tree, you have to, you mm-hmm. have to shift. That's one of the, Something yeah, that's the, change, one of the yeah. rules. And it's a really great yeah. rule for keeping a poem dyna- yeah. dynamic and for momentum to keep going. And so also what I'm always drawn to about the sonnet is that it turns and it, it turns and looks back at itself. So the couplet looks at all the logic that's just occurred and then either contorts mm-hmm. it or, agrees more with it or threatens or, mm-hmm. you know, in the case of Shakespeare, it might be, it might be wit. It could be comedy. It could be, he also, I mean, Shakespeare very often is very authoritarian in his couplet, mm-hmm. but I found the couplet, mm-hmm. my normal thinking about the couplet is just our minds as modern thinkers doesn't lend itself to the couplet because the couplet wants to kind of boss someone around and, you know, and, and say something <laughs> with a lot of clarity. You know, yeah. Wrap yeah. every. Like, like you were saying, kind of wrap right, things up right. in a way that, that might, I mean, not always, obviously, but might be reductive or might sound reductive yeah. to us now. So, but I also found that the couplet in two lines kind of defeat or emotional sadness could be rendered. And because um, mm-hmm. defeat 
is something that is said quickly. And then you kind of walk away as if the voice is trailing off, but you don't really know mm-hmm. if you're heard or not. But so sometimes the mm-hmm. couplet is a defeating sense in Sonnet 31 that you just read. Actually that last couplet does have something to say and yeah. it's, you know, you use the word apath- apathetic for that kind of unsaying and you can only have apathetic language with cataphatic language and which is the assertion. Yeah. And so I am making an mm-hmm. assertion here and I'm kind of uncomfortable with assertions, but I think this one is, is kind of, is how I felt. So, yeah. and I also, it's very strange. It's on at 31. I don't know why, but the statement, I don't know what I mean, but I mean it. When I, when yeah. that came to me, I, that was one of the most deeply felt things I've ever said. And it's so yeah. vague. <laughs> it's saying nothing, but you know, but I, yeah. even right now, like, we, but also saying everything. Yeah. Somehow. But I, I just remember feeling that part so deeply and I still feel it when I yeah. read this poem, like it just, it feels very visceral to me that that is yeah. almost, uh, you know, is, is really at the heart of how I feel. And it, yeah, th- that reminds me that line and your kind of assertion that you need the cataphatic and the apophatic reminds me of, have you ever read David Tracy's book, The Analogical Imagination? No, I haven't. I, I should. Yeah, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a lovely book in which he says, you know, good theology is going to necessarily be both kind of dialectical and analogical, mm-hmm. right? It's going to be cataphatic and apophatic. Yeah. And even within that single thought, right, I don't know what I mean, mm-hmm. the negative, but I mean <laughs> yeah. it. Right? The, the kind of declaration right. there is really nice kind of doing and undoing and then doing and then undoing going yeah. on just in that in that short phrase and itself. I think, you know, I think theologically then we are saying things, but we're also, if we know we're saying and we take responsibility for mm-hmm. our sayings and responsibility to me theologically for what we say is a deep sense that we could be and are wrong about everything Mm -hmm. we say regarding God or mystery or whatever other word you want, the universe. Some people are using that language now, which I think is, is a kind of modern substitute for the word God. But yeah. So yeah, the fact that we're, we're necessarily wrong doesn't mean that lets us off the hook for saying it doesn't let us off the hook. And, but it also, it means that theologically we always have to be striving for the very best and you know most ethical things that we could say mm-hmm. like what images mm-hmm. we could make what uh, what metaphors for god we have to be mm-hmm. constantly criticizing them and so if an mm-hmm. image of a warrior god you know creates a, an impulse towards violence we have to criticize it mm-hmm. it, it you know, it, it seems to me like some of the very good metaphors still from the Hebrew Bible are the ones where God is described actually as inanimate things like stone and, you know, rock, mm-hmm. wind, like forces of nature. But that's not also enough. But um, it gets away yeah. from this hyper human and anthropomorphic God. So, but in terms of the crown, you know, like with any poem, when you set out, you don't know if the form will work. You, you know, you're discovering mm-hmm. it. So, and especially with a crown, you really don't know if it's going to work because yeah. it's, yeah, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's normally, um, 14 
sonnets. And so I just mm-hmm. tried it as a, a experiment. And I think poets are very wise to study forms that they never know if they'll use. Mm-hmm. But when, when experience kind of is funneling down in you toward a poem, you then draw on whatever, you know, and I mm-hmm. kind of, you know, I knew what a crown was. And so I just started and it gave me kind of every day a place to start. And, and then when I got to 14, it still had momentum. And I also just think you have to break the form whenever creativity wants to. So I just, there was no way I wasn't going to continue because I just knew it wasn't, I wasn't done. And w- was there any particular reason that you ended up with, or what was your thinking behind ending up with 39 uh, sonnets? And then you have the really lovely, uh, that I, one of my favorite poems in the whole collection, you know, the 39th sonnet gives way to a poem called Psalm mm-hmm. 40, which is interestingly like a 13 line poem as opposed to a 14 <laughs> mm-hmm. line poem. And it's thinking with and in and kind of against Psalm 40 itself. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, <laughs> sorry. The, the, how, did, how did you end up at well, 39? I wasn't striking out for 39. Probably the last, from about 36 toward the end were very difficult. Mm-hmm. And I, I really, mm-hmm. it wasn't coming quickly. It wasn't fast. Um, and I think it was partly, you know, how do I end this thing? And pushing against the idea of the, the, the story that encapsulates too neatly, it kind of just naturally needed 39. I wrote Psalm 40 far before I wrote the ending of the, all the sonnets. Uh-huh, yeah. That's and I wrote it when I was turning 40 years old. And so uh-huh. I was turning 40 and the experience of the book really happened when I was 39, which uh-huh. is just a little secret. It doesn't matter to the reading of the book, but yeah. yeah. So I wrote Psalm 40 when I turned 40 and, you know, I returned kind of that, to that theme of being in the middle of life in the last poem, all I ever wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. but I also was thinking of obviously the true Psalm 40, which has a kind of refrain of, I will sing a new song. And, mm-hmm. but also all this waiting in that poem or in that Psalm, you know, I waited patiently for yeah. the Lord who inclined and heard my cry. And yeah. it's just a very, it's a very beautiful Psalm. I think very human, but 39, it was also just what the sequence needed. Somebody pointed out in another interview that 39 is the amount of lines in a Sestina, which is true. <laughs> and he wanted to, uh-huh. he was then going <laughs> to study like the Sestina uh, uh-huh. alongside the sonnets, but I had no, I, I have you uh, written no, just horrible ones. I mean, I, <laughs> that's a very difficult form. So yes, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, so just despite, you know, the collections resistance to a kind of neat story and despite your resistance to a neat story, I thought that we might end with you reading the, the collection's final poem, all I ever wanted, uh, which you connected to Psalm 40, which is also, again, a lovely poem, one of my favorites. But I think All I Ever Wanted is, is an interesting bookend for, for the collection, in part because it picks up a lot of the, the images from, well, from the collection as a whole, but also from In the Hearth. So the opening poem sets us right in the midst of fire, and this final poem ends with fire. But those common elements are, are kind of played in a very different way key in this in this final oh, yeah. poem i hadn't noticed um, the fire returning 
<laughs> you're, yeah. you're a good reader. You're a better reader than I am of my own poems. Um, but sometimes, you know, these images are just, they do recur and you're not, you're not totally aware. And that, that's just indicating their, their authenticity and importance, I think. So, yeah, yeah I can read this um, in closing and. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. All I ever wanted. When I thought it was right to name my desires, what I wanted of life, they seemed to turn like bleeding sheep, not to me, who could have been a caring, if unskilled shepherd, but to the boxed-in hills, beyond which the blue mountains sloped down with poppies, orange as crayfish, all the way to the Pacific seas, in which the hulls of whales steered them in search of a mate for whom they bellowed, in a new, highly particular song, we might call the most ardent articulation of love, the pin at the tip of evolution, modestly shining. In the middle of my life, it was right to say my desires, but they went away. I couldn't even make them out, not even as dots now in the distance. Yet I see the small lights of winter campfires in the hills. Teenagers in love often go there for their first nights, and each yellow-white glow tells me what I can know and admit to knowing, that all I ever wanted was to sit by a fire with someone who wanted me in measure the same to my wanting, to want to make a fire with someone, with you, was all Katie, thank you so much for sharing that poem in this book with us and for chatting with me Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.